So the, the reading this evening is from Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. We're going to go through to verse 36 and then uh, just jump across to 43 for an extra few uh, verses. So if you can follow that, it's, uh, if you want to grab a Bible, it's on page 1039. It'd be great to follow it in there as well as on the screens. So it's uh, Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes, comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Sorry, if I jumped. No, I'm there. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, and didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Then jumping down to 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples 
as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. And then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons on your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Graham. Keep that reading open as we look at this passage tonight. Let's start with a prayer. Lord, may the words that our lips have sung this evening become a reality in our lived lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. How are you getting on in reading Luke's Gospel? Are you excited by what's there? The more I've been reading this over the past few weeks and just being pulled into the story, the more just, in, in just incredible insight into, into Jesus and his teaching and everything else that's there. I guess if we were to um, put on Luke's Gospel as a play, I think it would probably be a play in, in five acts. So act one would be that time of the story of the nativity, all those um, stories we read across Christmas. Act two would be the period that Jesus spent in Galilee, as Luke describes his ministry there. Act three would start with that last verse that we, rang, we, we read this evening. Jesus resolutely, resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And so these following verses in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching and his preaching and his healings and so on as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. But all that he does in this next section of, the, of, of Act 3 is going to be overshadowed with the cross and Jerusalem as its end point. Act 4 Jesus is in Jerusalem, and we come to the time of his suffering, as he talks about in our reading um, this, morning, this evening, to the time of his crucifixion and the time of him being raised from the dead. And then Act 5 is, our, is, this, is Luke's second volume, the book, our book of Acts. And it's the story, really, of Jesus' ministry continued by spirit-empowered disciples. So those five acts. And this evening, we come really towards the end of Act 2 with what we have here, because Act 3 begins with our last verse tonight of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. And it's almost as, as Luke tells the story that he, he wants to, to, to bring us to a point of saying, okay, have you got it so far? There's almost a sort of a, a rain check going on. and said, are, are you still with me, as the lecturer would sometimes say? Where are you at the moment? Have you understood what's been going on in the story? And I think it's almost what Jesus is doing with his disciples as well at this point, as he begins to ask these quite searching questions. He's saying, have you got it? Where, where are you at the moment? And I think as Jesus brings us to this point, he begins to ask two very significant questions. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? 
Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? We're going to look a bit at both of those this evening. Luke has focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It started there with that sermon in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as we've walked with Jesus through these chapters so far, as we've read through Luke, those following Jesus, they've seen some wonderful healings. They've seen a man with an evil spirit delivered in Capernaum. Many have come to Jesus at Simon Peter's home and been healed. They've seen the raising of the dead son of the widow in Nain, and they've seen the raising of Jairus' daughter, as we were looking at last week. Some people brought their friend and lowered him through the roof, and Jesus both healed and forgave him. They've seen some wonderful healings that Jesus has performed. Those following Jesus had seen him calm one of the infamous storms on Lake Galilee. They'd seen him feed 5,000 people with minimal supplies. comes just immediately before what we read this evening. And those following Jesus had heard some wonderful teaching, words which still resonate in our English language, even if we don't necessarily even find that they're being attributed back towards Jesus. Jesus encourages and challenges, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good, or to do evil, to save life or destroy it. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given you with an abundance you can't even begin to imagine. A farmer went out to sow. Wonderful teaching. Wonderful healings. They've been with Jesus. Now, there were many rabbis at that time who went around with disciples who preached. There were many others who described themselves as healers and had a, a track record, if you like, of when they prayed or when they spoke over people. Those people were healed. So is Jesus any different to any of these? Granted, he did things in a far bigger scale, it seems, and there seemed to be a real coherence between both his teaching and his actions in healing. But was there anything more about Jesus? So in verse 18, as we read at the start of our reading, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? Who do these people we've been with over these past few weeks as we've walked with, who do they say that I am? One of them pipes up and says, well, some of them reckon you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or Elisha or one of the prophets. They're the sort of response you might expect. We know even King Herod Antipas, having had John the Baptist murdered when he heard about Jesus and what was going on, said, help, this is John come back to life. And he was frightened at that point as to what that might mean for him. Some of them look back to Elijah and Elisha. They were prophets who, who both preached but also did acts of healing in some of the similar ways to which Jesus was doing. And Malachi had said, there's going to be an Elijah-type figure who's going to come. 
before the great day of the Lord. So you can understand why those around him were saying, this is who Jesus is. Is John the Baptist come back or one of the other prophets? The crowds were describing Jesus in categories that they were familiar with. They were labels for Jesus that they were comfortable with. It didn't stretch them at all to be able to say these things. Jesus said, who do the crowds say that I am? Have a think for a moment, uh, maybe in twos and threes. Think of the crowds today, the people that you're with most days during the week and elsewhere. If people ever stop to think, what answer would they give if you were to ask them, who is Jesus? Just turn to, to each other and, and, and just ask that question. And I'll get Jack to come around with a, with a microphone in a minute and um, get some answer. But those you work with or whatever, who, if, they, if you ask them about Jesus. Okay, I'm going to ask, um, Jack, Jack's going to wander around. If any, anybody wants to, to, uh, to, to give an answer to that. Who, who is it that people you, you are with most of the time would say Jesus is? Ideas. Our saviour. Healer. A good man and dead religious teacher. Mythical tooth fairy. Mm-hmm. Others? Okay. A whole variety, isn't there, of, of different views. I mean, some would say he was a great social teacher, um, from the levelers through to Tony Benn. They've claimed the Sermon on the Mount as being a great social manifesto that they're willing to, to live out. Um, some would, would say that he was a failed hero. Um, you know, he just got to the point where the authorities couldn't stand him any longer. And as with so many other revolutionaries, he was put down. A whole variety of different ways in which people will answer, who, does, who do the crowds say that I am? See, and for Peter too, it was an easy question for him to answer. He didn't have to do any thinking for himself as to who Jesus was. He just had to pick up what it was they'd been talking about in the marketplaces and as they'd walked through the fields and talked with the farmers and the shepherds and so on. Who was it they were saying Jesus is? Quite easy to actually answer that question. Who do the crowds say that I am? But Jesus turns it tight, doesn't he? And says, okay, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it's a question he asks each one of us. Who do you say that I am? I wonder how immediate Peter's response was. Did he stop and think or did he simply blurt out, you are the Messiah of God, you are the Christ of God, you are God's anointed one. There are all different ways in which you can translate the words that are there. God's anointed one. 
It's the description Jesus used of himself in that Nazareth sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because he has anointed me. Messiah. Jesus tells Peter to keep that quiet. Not because Peter had got the assessment wrong, but because there was so much that went with that word Messiah, which Jesus didn't actually fit in the culture of the day. For those of the day, the Messiah was going to be a great conquering hero like David who would come in, would wipe the Romans out and and set up the kingdom of Israel. Even after all the events Jesus talks about in this passage this evening, we find them at the beginning of Acts saying, okay, Jesus, is it now you're going to get the kingdom back to Israel? They still had that vision of of the conquering hero who's going to come and throw away the oppressors. Jesus wants to expand their thinking and their understanding. He wants them to think bigger than that. Jesus opens the door to something far greater. Yes, Jesus is Messiah. Yes, he is God's anointed one. But not the sort of Messiah that the crowds would have gone for. His Messiahship will be one which will involve suffering. It will involve rejection. It will involve death. And it will involve being raised from the dead. That's the sort of Messiah that Jesus is. And those actions open his saving power in a way which was blown their minds if they'd really begun to understood it at the time. Still does for us today in terms of all that Jesus has done. Jesus repeats that same teaching after the transfiguration. And not surprisingly, we're told they didn't understand what this meant and they were too afraid to ask. As one commentator I read this week said, it's one thing to be taken for a fool by staying quiet. It's quite another to open your mouth and have it proved. Yes, Jesus is a Messiah, but he's a Messiah like nothing in their dreams. And so Jesus goes on to try and build a bigger picture for them to understand who he is. He says that he describes himself here as the Son of Man. Now, at one level, that's simply saying, I'm human. That's important. Jesus was human. He was human, but he went beyond that. For many who saw him, that was all they understood. As we've already said, if we talk to people around us today, he was a healer, he was a teacher, whatever it was. He was just a man like any other man. But Jesus uses that phrase, and I wonder whether the disciples suddenly began to remember other things that they'd learned in synagogue school. About a prophecy, about a vision that the prophet Daniel had, where he seemed to be looking into the throne room of heaven. And there was one like a son of man, clothed in white, in the presence of God himself. Maybe we look back and reinterpret it in that way, but I wonder whether there were just inklings of that beginning to come as Jesus begins to open their minds to who he really is. 
And then between those two uses of the term son of man, we have this episode of what we call the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they go up the mountain with Jesus, and they have this incredible hilltop experience. It's an experience that leaves them speechless and afraid. Particularly as the cloud falls around them on top of a mountain. If you read your way through the scriptures, you'll know that very often, mountaintop experience with the cloud coming down are a sign that God himself is coming to speak and to be present. And it was no different this time, because out of the cloud they hear this voice. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. That description of Jesus as God's son forms a bookend for act two of Luke's drama. Because if we go back to the start in his baptism, as Jesus prays afterwards, we hear that a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. My son. Here, we come into something incredibly mysterious about the nature of Jesus. Here's the answer to who is Jesus. This Jesus is the God-man, fully human, fully divine, who came and walked this earth, who came among us. As Eugene Peter so brilliantly put it, God became flesh and pitched his tent in our backyard. But that's what God has done in the person of Jesus. Yes, he is human. He understands all that we go through as human beings. But yes, he is God fully and totally. Now, we've probably been to sufficient carol services that we shouldn't really be surprised by this. You remember what happens when the angel comes to Mary and says you're to bear a child and he is to be called the Son of the Most High. It's an alternative way of saving Son of God. So right from the start, Luke is drawing us in to who Jesus is. This God-man, this one who is fully human and fully God. And as Luke tells us, it's almost as if he's saying to Theophilus, who he dressed the gospel to, have you got it yet? Are you there? Can you understand what's going on as this story unfolds? And I believe he says it to each one of us. Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's a mystery. Don't ask me to explain it. I just take it on trust that it's come from God and been revealed on the lips of Jesus as well. I just have to walk and understand it and say, yes, I'm willing to go with that because of all the other things that are there, all the other evidence. But ultimately, as one of the other Gospels has it, when, when Peter gives that response, Jesus says to him, you have not cottoned on to that yourself. It's what God has shown you. And that's God's call on each one of us to open our eyes to see who Jesus really is. The God-man, the one who is fully human and fully divine. And all that that means for us. The full implication doesn't really become clear for the disciples and even then they struggled with it. 
until after Jesus' resurrection. But we find the genesis of all of that here in Luke chapter 9. Who is Jesus? He is the God-man who will now resolutely set out for Jerusalem and all that Jerusalem holds. Jesus asked each one of us the question, who do you say I am? We've actually, in a way, answered that in a lot of what we sung already tonight. We sang, Jesus, reign in me. We've sung about God's promises. And they're all summed up in Jesus, the God-man, the Son of Man, Son of God. And however tentatively we might begin to walk in, under, in, in saying, yes, that's true, there's more and more to learn as we go on. Theologians over the past 2,000 years, great tomes, many PhDs written, and so on, in terms of what this actually means and what this means for us and what it looks like. As I say, we can't explain it. This is God working in ways which is a mystery in the deepest sense of that word. If we say yes to Jesus, this Jesus who is the God-man, what does that mean for us? Responding to Jesus' question with you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, has implications. We can't just say, well, that's, that's fine, I'm just going to wander off now. If we're really saying that, and we mean it, then there are implications that come from that. Jesus ties together our confession of who Jesus is with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the two go together. It's certainly true for me in my, my own journey. It was the summer of 1966, and I was away on a Pathfinder house party down in the New Forest as a Pathfinder at that stage. And I think for the first time in my own life, I was actually able to answer that question, who do you say I am? And I'm able to say, yes, Jesus, son of man, son of God. I've grown up in a Christian family. I can remember spiritual experiences from when I was aged about six or seven, I think. But actually, that was the first time I made it real. But you know, one of the great things about that time was that the leaders on that house party pushed us beyond answering that question to the other thing that Jesus talks about here about discipleship and it's 52 years or more now since that took place I can still see the room in which that teaching was given and it was exactly what Jesus was saying here about taking up our cross daily and following him if we're serious about this if we're serious about saying who Jesus is then he demands our undivided attention our undivided loyalty in all that we say and do and are You see, if Jesus is who is revealed to be in our reading, if he goes on to suffer, to die, and to be raised, then surely following him is what matters above everything else. It matters above ambition, above career, above family, above riches, above marriage, about being liked, above everything. It means saying, Lord, I'm going to sell my life out to you, and I'm going to follow you wholeheartedly. In what I do. What might that look like? 
I don't know what it will be like for you. Maybe it will be that for some of you here this evening, as he, ha- as he did with me when I was 21, there's a call on your life to remain single for the kingdom's sake, that you might live your life out wholeheartedly for him as a single person. It might be for those of you perhaps who are coming towards the end of, of, of teaching courses and being trained to be teachers, of God saying, I want you to forsake the leafy lanes of Hampshire and I want you to go into the most deprived city centre areas to teach. For others of you, it might be that God is saying, this country is not where I want you to minister. There are other places where I want you to go and to follow that through. For some of you, it will be, I want you to build a family that's going to reside in a community where you're going to impact that community for Jesus. But you're always going to be looking outward. It's a call to say, Jesus, I am your servant, and I will go where you want me to do, and will do what you want me to do. It's that serious that Jesus is, what Jesus is calling us to. The disciples immediately got it wrong in our reading this evening. First thing we find them doing is they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. It's not the last time they'll do this. Luke records the same thing happening right at the heart of the Last Supper on that night that he was betrayed. It's unbelievable when we read it. But actually, what was going on? They were saying, well, I want to be top dog. Jesus says, that isn't the way you live. And to do it, he brings the one who is the most despised outsider of that society into the middle of the disciples, a little child. Children were were washed away, basically, in that society and weren't seen as being anything. And Jesus brings the little child in and saying... You've got to be as, as, as like that. That's the example of what it means to follow me, to serve me with all that you are and all that you have. There's no place for pride in what we've done as we serve Jesus. There's place for rejoicing in what Jesus has done through us. And that is great to do that. And then what else happens? They want to confine Jesus to themselves. John says, Lord, we we saw somebody casting out demons who who wasn't one of us. They they, they didn't belong to us, Lord, so can can we go and stop them? And Jesus says, no, because they they also are part of me. Jesus is there for all. And we'll see that in, in, in even more next week when we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. But for this evening, Jesus calls us to follow him. Luke opens and closes Act chapter 2 of his gospel with those two declarations of the Father. To Jesus, God says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Are we willing to listen to him? Who do you say that Jesus is? And have you begun to work out the implications of the answer that you give? 
that you might follow him wholeheartedly, day by day, moment by moment, wherever that might lead, whether it's in the mountaintop experiences or whether it's in the valley, that you will allow Jesus to lead you in his way. Let's pray. We've sung in our songs already this evening, we've asked that Jesus might reign in me. Lord, we pray that we may make a reality of that if we're serious in following you, that we allow you to reign in our lives. But Lord, thank you also that we have sung, faithful you are and faithful you will be, that all your promises are yes and amen. And Lord, thank you that as you call us into this wholehearted radical discipleship, so too you promise to equip us and that you are the faithful one. Help us to trust you. Forgive us for those times when we fail to do this but help us to walk with you moment by moment that we might acknowledge that you truly are Son of Man, Son of God. Amen.